Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from France, Myanmar, Hungary, the United States, and a see you in hell also from the United States. All right, starting out with France, we got some good news, uh, although it's tempered with, you know, awareness of what is to come. Uh, the good news is that Macron, the president of France, has won re-election. He's won his re-election a bid against uh, Marianne Le Pen, who is his opponent and the leader of the National Rally Party, recently renamed from its original title, the National Front Party, which was the name that the party had when her father ran it and also ran for the presidency back in the 20th century. Now, this is good news, obviously. Macron won, and he won a reasonably commanding victory, uh, 58.5 to 41.5, respectively. However, that is half the margin of victory that he had over Marianne Le Pen when they faced off against each other exactly the same matchup in 2017. This reflects a long-term change in the French electorate, you know, people just warming up to the right wing in general. It also reflects a generalized support for the outsider candidate. Uh, French uh, voters have a history of voting against the incumbent. In fact, Macron is the first French president to win re-election in quite some time. And that has a lot to do with the fact that his opponent is a, you know, member of the extreme right wing. But again, the fact here is that 41.5% of French voters, people who voted in this election, chose to elect a radical right wing candidate, somebody who is opposed to LGBTQ rights, somebody who is opposed to the rights of immigrants to France, somebody who is critical of France's role in NATO, somebody who is interested in, you know, changing France's relationship to Russia, somebody who wants to maintain the presence of anti-democratic figures in the European Union, like Viktor Orban. This is the biggest vote that the nationalists have ever gotten. And uh, they have been in the presidential race three times so far, once with Marianne Le Pen and once with her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen. It is unlikely that Le Pen has gone from politics. She's only in her 50s, which is quite young in political terms. And she has vowed that her party will continue to fight against Macron's party, which is a centrist party, and the left in the legislative elections that are coming in June. Moving on to Myanmar, there is a result in another trial for the former democratically elected leader of that country, Aung San Suu Kyi. She has been tried for corruption and received five more years in jail. Her jailers, the people who are trying her for corruption, uh, are the military coup, the, the leaders of the military junta that ousted her from power last year on February the 1st. Now, this is the second time that Aung San Suu Kyi has been charged with uh, various crimes by this military government. However, these trials are all being held in secret. The government is not allowing any public statements or records. Her lawyers aren't even allowed to talk about this trial in public, which indicates that whether or not she was participating in any kind of corruption at all, this is a show trial, right? This is a military government that is trying to prevent a potential critic and rival from being active in the public sphere. Specifically, in this case, Suki was accused of accepting over $100 million in cash and gold. However, the only person who is a witness to any of this and the only evidence that the military government seems to have put forth is the person who made the accusation that he gave her the bribe. 
Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi has denied this. However, again, nobody can talk about it publicly. She is an elderly person, and so her guilty verdict is adding on five additional years of prison sentence for her on top of the five that she already had. Uh, if she is also found guilty for all of the other things that the military has accused her of, she could face um, over 150 years in prison. So essentially, this is a, a soft life sentence. Now, while there is a lot of political opposition to the military government in Myanmar, it is not particularly likely that Aung San Suu Kyi herself will see the end of this particular regime, especially if it lasts as long as the previous one did, which was for about 30 years. Myanmar was under a military government for arguably longer than almost any other country in modern history. So with this silencing of their predecessor and their most obvious rival for power, the military is looking to maintain its structure for potentially several decades. And this is coming ahead of a summit of Southeast Asian countries, which Joe Biden is supposed to be attending next month. Moving on to the European Union and to Hungary in specific, uh, the European Union is looking for the first time to use a legal means to punish a member state, specifically Hungary, for anti-democratic practices. Now, like I said, this is the first time that the European Union has said that it's going to use this legal means, which is a way by which the European Union can withhold funds from a member state. Uh, that this is the first time that they're going to use it to punish somebody for being insufficiently democratic. Uh, this could mean that the European Central Bank will remove a lot of funding promises that Hungary has gotten from them over the next several years. This is an extremely big deal because funding from the European Central Bank and from other sources in the European Union structure is one of the major incentives for a country to be in the European Union, in addition to all of the other customs union and like people moving around freedom stuff. Specifically, the European Union has called out Hungary and the government of Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party for their excessive media control, for the executive's control over the judicial system. Specifically, Orban is really rigging the Hungarian judicial system in order to maintain his own personal power and the power of his party. And they're also calling out his um, anti-queer politics and his anti-immigrant politics, as well as his pretty blatant anti-Semitic politics. Orban and his government have been opposed to what they say is the outdo influence of uh, Soros, the billionaire, who is a Hungarian Jewish man. Uh, and so they are opposed to Soros because they think that he represents Hungary badly and also that he is, you know, he's the perfect poster child for what they consider to be this like figure that unites business interests and the left wing because, you know, they accuse him of funding left wing government and political operations in other countries, right? So Orban could be facing some, you know, some serious consequences for this politics. Uh, however, all that's happened so far is that the European Union has said that they're going to start this process. In order for the funding to actually be removed, it needs approval from most of the other member states in the European Union. Uh, and Hungary does have some allies in this respect, especially and particularly Poland, which has also been potentially highlighted as a target for this measure, again, because of their anti-democratic measures, very similar to Hungary's. Now, 
this could be a serious problem for Orban because he has just won re-election. You know, he he just won against the united opposition in Hungary, and this is a you know this is a a blow to him, especially as the United States right wing is really saddling up to him as a potential example and an exemplar of how to be a you know anti-democratic leader. Now, turning to anti-democratic leaders, we have news that Donald Trump has been found in contempt of court in a New York legal battle. This is just a civil trial, but it is, you know, it is a, a break in the dam of Trump's ability to avoid any legal consequences for his activities. So we're going to have to see how this is going to affect Trump's organization and his ability to uh, maintain credibility as a, you know, essentially impervious figure in the legal world. Another person who has run afoul of the law from the extreme right wing of the United States political system is Madison Cawthorn, a sitting member of the House of Representatives who has been found trying to enter an airport with a loaded gun in his carry-on bag for a second time. Now, this is the second time that Representative Cawthorn has tried to bring a, a loaded firearm through uh, the airport security system. Now, it's anybody's guess why he would try to do this a second time. My guess is that he wanted to wash the news away from the last time that he was in the news cycle, which was for accusing other Republicans of inviting him to coke-fueled orgy parties. And so it's possible that he was, you know, trying to cleanse the, the, the news palette a little bit. Additionally, in the United States, we have more evidence from the texts that Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff of Donald Trump and Trump's chief of staff during the attempted coup on January 6th of last year, Mark Meadows has released several thousand texts uh, that were sent to him by Republican party members or Republican operatives or Republican style media people regarding the coup. And uh, as they are being sifted through, more and more of them are obvious evidence of the way in which this coup was planned and how close we were to actually having one. Uh, this new trove of texts range from uh, evidence of open political collaboration with Republican media personalities such as Sean Hannity uh, on trying to get people out to vote on election day in 2020. Uh, but some of them are just like more open coup preparation texts. There are sitting Republican members of Congress who are calling for Meadows and Trump to use loyal state legislators to send different electors, like to just like lot to send different electors and just lie about what the electoral vote count was in their state, uh, calling for the use of state government offices to challenge vote counts, things like that. There are lots of Republican insider people freaking out over prep for January the 6th, uh, asking Meadows about what they should do or what they should say or where they should be on the day. Uh, which is a particularly interesting thing. You know, what is it that they were worried about being close to here? Uh, some of them are pretty open about calling for Pence to just count the electoral votes that he wants and just announce that Trump is the president. Uh, others are pretty open about saying that Trump should just use this opportunity to declare martial law and become the president forever. Uh, the person involved in that particular call is Marjorie Taylor Greene, who famously uh, spelled it martial law like M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, as opposed to M-A-R-T-I-A-L, but you know, whatever, uh, I'm pretty bad at spelling myself. During the coup itself, these texts reveal a lot of Republican people who are really freaked out about what is happening on Capitol Hill at the time. Uh, some of them are obviously just 
collaborators who really smell defeat and are like, Trump needs to get these people out of here. They're going to hurt somebody and it's going to make us look bad. Others of them are just like sad that it seems like the battle has been lost and they're just like, yeah, we need to cut our losses. We, we you know, we, 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 we can't start the next electoral cycle on such a terrible footing. Uh, we're just going to have to continue receiving these dribs and drabs of this kind of information if we want to see a normative legal battle over Trump's involvement in the coup. This is pretty much the only way forward on that front. Uh, and unfortunately, it is playing directly into the Republican strategy book, trying to make this a delayed process and something that they might be able to stop in the fall of this year if they are to take control over the House of Representatives again. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are sticking with the United States, and we're talking about John Ashbrook, a conservative Republican congressperson and a member of a worldwide anti-communist organization. Ashbrook was born in Ohio and worked for his father, who was a newspaper guy and a prominent politician, also a member of Congress. Uh, after Ashbrook completed his law degree and, you know, did some newspapery type work for his father, he ran for his father's house seat, won it in 1961, and held it until 1982. Ashbrook was a prominent and, like, stalwart conservative figure, both in the Republican Party and in the House of Representatives. He was a major player in the move to get Goldwater to run for the Republican nomination in 1964. Uh, the nomination and uh, running of Barry Goldwater in 64 is a major uh, hallmark in the history of the radicalization of the Republican Party and its transition from a sort of classically liberal party to a more mainstream conservative party. For his involvement uh, as a long lifetime conservative, he was honored by the Liberty Lobby, which is a famous uh, anti-Semitic organization in the United States. He ran against Richard Nixon in the 1972 Republican nomination for the presidency as an anti-moderate Republican. Uh, he failed, but did get a pretty good showing in several of the early states, uh, including Nixon's home state of California, where he won 10%. Uh, Ashbrook is known to have attended meetings of the World Anti-Communist League, an anti-communist organization that has ties from everybody ranging from uh, anti-communist operatives in Africa and South America to um, former Nazis who became, you know, military operatives and uh, military contractors throughout the world. Ashbrook was going to run for the United States Senate in 1982, and it seemed like he was going to win, in fact, uh, but he died suddenly of a gastric hemorrhage on April 24th, 1982. So, John Ashbrook, for your uh, terrifying ability to blend the Republican mainstream with the extreme right, we will see you in hell. Thank you for listening to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe on whatever it is you're listening to this on, leave a review, tell friends, family, and comrades. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 spelled out and everything all one word. That's also my email, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right or fascism 15. Again, that's one word. All right. I will talk to you next week. Yeah.